Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Back to School edition. My name is Brent Whitmire. I'm an editorial and features writer, and I'm here in the Journal Newsroom studio on Friday, September 4th. The dog days of summer are over, and there's a new crispness in the air. Calgary elected its first Wild Rose MLA last night. It's not even Labor Day, but Rachel Notley's critics are already accusing the NDP government of prioritizing unions over everyday citizens. On Press Gallery 101, we'll talk about all that, plus a federal election that'll soon be on us before midterms. As always, I promise, all works will be properly cited. Here in the studio, ready to earn class participation marks, we have reporter Sheila Pratt. Hello. Provincial Affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Good morning. And Provincial Affairs reporter Mariam Ibrahim. Hello. You all look fantastic. Let's start with that uh, by-election from last night in Calgary Foothills. Uh, Wild Rose candidate Prasad Panda defeated NDP stalwart Bob Hawksworth in a riding that was only ever voted PC. Um, Graham, you made all sorts of bold predictions about this <laughs> earlier this week. You're being facetious. I, <laughs> I didn't. I am. Uh, were you at all surprised? I was surprised by the turnout. Uh, 39%, almost 40%. Not the actual outcome. We were thinking it's going to be Wild Rose. The NDP was saying off the record weeks ago, likely the Wild Rose. The Wild Rose was being really careful. The issue for them, all of them, was turnout. They were afraid if it was a really low turnout. Some were telling me they thought it would be 19, 20 percent. That would have meant whoever got the vote out. You get more buses to take more bodies to the, the polling station. You could win it that way. This is not a bad turnout, almost 40 percent. So I think that the fact the Wild Rose won, we were expecting that. What's going to happen now, you have the Wild Rose saying, look, this is proof that we're going to form the next government. This is going to be, this is a bellwether. We're going to actually move, move ahead now, and we are on the cusp in the next three and a half years to form government. The NDP is going to be saying, look, and they had said it last night, this was a conservative riding. It was an uphill battle for us. Mm-hmm. It, it will not change anything in the short term. It means nothing in terms of the number of seats, of course, still an NDP majority government. It will be interesting, though, to see if the government backs down on any of its policies thinking it's maybe pushing people too far when a, a recession is hitting us. What did you think about uh, Joe Sisi? He, he endorsed uh, the candidate. Um, it seemed kind of a weird move for the finance minister. Uh, the NDP seemed to be sort of targeting this riding in a way. Did they, did they have a chance of winning? Did they? Well, I thought that was really interesting, too, because, of course, it, the, the message really changed before the by-election. I mean, it really seemed like the NDP was throwing everything they could at, this by, at, at the race. Uh, you know, a few days before the vote, they held a press conference with Bob Hawksworth, surrounded by basically every Calgary uh, MLA, and that's where uh, Joe Cece, the finance minister, stood up to say that he endorsed Bob Hawksworth, and I sort of quipped on Twitter as if we were going to expect him <laughs> to endorse any other any candidate other. in that race. Um, but certainly they did seem to really be putting everything they could into it. Premier Notley was campaigning with Hawksworth uh, on more than one occasion. She attended a rally with him. And then after the, the race and, and after the results were in, suddenly Joe C. puts out a statement that says, well, we sort of knew we were never going to win this race. This isn't really a place that we've ever had a chance of winning. And it's always really voted conservative. So, you know, good for you. Yeah, it's pretty interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think I think what's in- going to be interesting now to watch is, of course, the Wild Rose will quite rightly say that they needed to win this to look like they could be the alternative. So is this the end of the honeymoon for the for the uh, NDP down there, and is it the beginning of some kind of momentum for the Wild Rose? I'm, I'm, I think it's too early to say, but uh, I'm sure that's the way the Wild Rose is going to try and portray it, so it will give the NDP a little more grief going into the budget. Yeah, yeah and I think on that point, the fact that I think the Premier went down there four times in the, the by-election. So they're saying one yeah, they thing. they wanted it. <laughs> I know. They're saying, yeah. Behind the scenes, they were saying, look, if, you know, we can't win this. It's going to be the Wild Rose. But publicly, 
you have the premier there four times. You have the entire caucus from Calgary go up there and stand around the candidate during you know, a news conference. That's putting the imprint of the entire NDP caucus and government behind this. And so when they lose, they all lose. I also think, however, that the, it was the Wild Rose that had the most at stake in this. If they had lost it, they had the most to gain by winning because they can end up looking like, okay, the right can go behind them. And he certainly outpolled the Tory by a substantial amount. So uh, for the for the Wild Rose, I think the win was very important. And it's important also because it gives them a foothold back in, a, in an urban yeah, uh, center, which is really yes. important for, very for that important. party, if that party ever it's, hopes it's to, the first to ever come close to forming government. You have to be able to make those breakthroughs. Do you think we're already starting to see this sort of Calgary-Edmonton tension that we've seen in previous years where Edmonton's been on the outside. Now it's Calgary on the outside. Is is this sort of thing happening again, kind of like in the Stelmac government? Oh, that regional thing never goes away in Alberta politics. And yeah, it'll be complicated for Notley, very complicated. Especially which is because why the party's base is really based in Edmonton, right? And I'm, I mean, we can see that with the the result that we saw yesterday. Yeah, uh, and you know, and even oh, sorry, go go ahead. Well, she spends a lot of time down there, and she gives a lot of announcements down there, and she's going to have to keep doing it. But it's going to be interesting to see how far that can go to keep Calgary. On side, and it's, it's issues like well, look at the election night when NDP won in Edmonton. They won, they won outright. You know, they won it by huge landslides in the ridings. In Calgary, it was vote splitting a lot of times with the the uh, PCs and the the Wild Rose. What that means moving forward, like last night, the PCs, of course, finished third. You know, what happens? Do they fold their tent, moving with the Wild Rose? There'll be a bit of a tug of war over the future of the the PCs moving forward. There's also issues. Uh, for example, um, between Edmonton and Calgary, um, the civil service. Most of them, of course, this is, a, this is a capital city. So up here you've got the government saying, we will protect public sector jobs. We will protect the frontline workers. And so you, ha- you have the Wild Rose saying it's time to start cutting in the public sector. Even though we have public sector workers, of course, all over the province, they're headquartered here in Edmonton. And uh, this is going to be interesting to see what actually happens on that particular issue when you get the government saying, yeah, we'll look at efficiencies, but not when it comes to public sector. Well, and that's really where they're trying to draw the line. I mean, when even in that in that statement that was released by Joe CC yesterday, you know, the last quarter of it was devoted to sort of saying there are some members of the opposition that would have us cut teachers and nurses, uh, you know, and this isn't what Albertans want. And so certainly that is the line that the government is trying to draw between themselves and the opposition. From Calgary's perspective, you have announcements of layoffs after layoffs and executives all these all these positions disappearing so there's sort of that uh, that inner city tension interesting um another thing that sort of it reminded me actually of the uh, the election was uh when the ndp won going to a pub later on people were like harper's next harper's next <laughs> and and last night in calgary foothills at panda's victory party the crowd erupted in spontaneous chants of harper harper yeah. do you think this uh, election is more than just a plebiscite on this government but actually some sort of reflects that sort of federal election going on. Is this sort of a by-election uh, station on the way to the federal election? Well, it's a little bit interesting, I think, in Alberta with Alberta conservatives because, you know, and I think some of this came out during the by-election too where we saw the Wild Rose sort of trying to paint themselves uh, oppositionally against the PCs as true conservatives and sort of trying to call out some current PC MLAs for campaigning for liberals, for example, and being seen at liberal events. They are really sort of painting themselves and positioning themselves as true conservatives, conservatives uh, through and through in Alberta and conservatives who support the federal conservative party. And you really started to see that division on the, on the sort of right side of the political spectrum in this by-election race too. 
it raises interesting issues about Unite the Right again, because yeah. that was a disaster when Prentice tried to unite the right by bringing the Wild Rose in. Now the Conservatives are marginalized. And I think that Harper Harper chanting was a little bit about, yeah, he's our next victory and and the whole, you, you know, keeping the right together is going to be a subtext to all this. It's interesting. Imagine if the Wild Rose had lost. I agree with uh, Sheila that if, if they had lost, that had been a huge setback for the Wild Rose. Of course, they won. And it doesn't really change the the uh, mechanics, if I can call it that, of Alberta politics. Federally, though, um, no, I'm not expecting a huge, you know, NDP sweep <laughs> in the federal <laughs> election in Alberta. Despite what they did in the provincial uh, theater in May, I don't see um, them making huge inroads. There's some polls showing four or five opposition seats, which, of course, is significant. you got 34 seats in the province. Uh, there's six new ones. Only one so far is an NDP in, in Edmonton. They may get you know three or four, but I don't see last night's Wild Rose victory meaning they've stopped the orange crush in Alberta. It was never going to be an orange crush federally here. On Monday, uh, the Alberta government released its first quarter fi- fiscal update predicting a $5.9 billion deficit. Joe C.C. said it's actually probably more like 6.5. If that fiscal update is our syllabus for this uh, Press Gallery 101. Uh, what can we expect in the budgetary midterm? A big, big deficit. <laughs> um, that's for sure. I mean, uh, yeah, it, it's going to be uh, at least probably $6.5 billion. If Albertans look at the price of oil over the next two months and see it sort of still stagnating where it is, we can expect a big deficit, which is going to mean the government's going to have to be really careful about where it chooses to do out its money we're already seeing record spending and this is where the wild rose really scores its points it strikes me i just have to say looking back a bit every t- so many times under new government we've gone into these economic issues like when getty took over and oil prices went down to nine bucks a barrel and stelmet came in did a royalty review oil prices crashed again so here we are it's it's a constant difficult political dynamic they always have to manage and it's going to make life difficult for Notley no doubt about it and what it's doing is raising questions about where where the revenue is going to come from because certainly uh, you know these new tax measures that have been brought in don't cover that shortfall and certainly CC sort of hinted at the fact that he's examining all sorts of revenue options except for a PST and so now that's raising all sorts of questions and you know now there are questions about when the royalty review is done and when and when you know that sort of moratorium on changes is up in 2017. You're talking here about the budget yeah (laughs) you call it a midterm we're talking here about the very first full NDP budget coming out at the end of October of course it's time to come out just after the federal election they know it's going to be a big budget. They don't want to bring it out before the federal election because then it gives ammunition to all of the, the Mulcair haters. The issue, of course, is going to be, yeah, how do they, they raise money? Will they have to start cutting? Um, they're dipping right now into the contingency allowance by $3 billion. Um, CC, I think, maybe may in a Freudian slip, he said it'd be $5 billion they're going to be taking out, and they, they have to correct him. His office said, no, he meant to say 3 not 5 It's going to be the, a target on their backs. And you can argue... It's unfair for the NDP to be compared against, you know, 44 years of PCs. Keep in mind, the PCs in their budget predicted a $5 billion deficit this year. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter who would be in power right now. There'd be a massive deficit. NDP's a little bit higher because they put money back into education and health. I just, I just want to say also that every Tory government has dipped into the sustainability account. And the NDP is going to get big time flack for doing it, even though every Tory government has done this and they've always taken millions, billions out of the sustainability fund. And I I think just once again, this kind of crisis, and 
it's going to be interesting to see if she has any different response. It's the fundamental problem in Alberta fiscal policy, right? We're so reliant on these oil prices, we can't get off that roller coaster. So will this government do anything to take a longer term approach? Probably won't be allowed, you know, the opposition won't allow it to or won't want it to. That won't happen overnight, but is she going to make any steps towards that? Uh, We've already seen a bit of juggling on that energy file. Uh, Royalty changes won't happen until 2017. But the climate change panels also met, um, started meeting, holding open houses. I know Graham last time was uh, was, uh, was basically saying good luck. How how optimistic are you or what do you think about these uh, these sessions that uh, Andrew Leach is holding, Sheila? Well, they, they had really good turnout in Edmonton and Calgary at these just, they're just open houses. People go and give their comments. You can talk to technical people in the panel. So it's it's not a, a hearing in any sense of the word. But there were 400 odd people in Calgary and more than 500 in Edmonton. That's pretty good turnout. I found it was quite a good mix, Graham, of advocates, regular citizens, uh, all ages of people. It, it was very, very interesting. I got to say on a personal level, I got to say it's nice being in a room of people who are not denying the science. Yeah. <laughs> Because I tend to, in my business, bump into the deniers. They email me, you know, they'll get in my face at um, sometimes at public meetings, not at this one. And on a personal level, it's nice to see the, you know, there's people come out and talk to them intelligently about some of the problems. It's a bit goofy in some ways. It was post-it notes up on the wall. In other words, what should we do about, you know, issue X? And they had post-it notes, you put a little, a little, you know, um, a few words. It's like Twitter for, for my generation. <laughs> and you put, up, out, you put it up on the wall and then they'll collect all the stick-it notes and then they'll figure out. I mean, it's not it's not a cross-section of, you know, of the, the province. This is a really difficult file. And uh, Andrew Leach, University of Alberta professor, he's well-respected. It's a lot of work on him to try and get some recommendations and ideas to get to the government to do something significant on climate change. I think it is really difficult. I think that being said, there's going to be some themes that are going to emerge that peop- that I think Leach is going to be able to tackle. And I, I, I think the answers are going to be very, very difficult. But there was a lot of renewable energy people at that uh, conference. So there'll be something on that and energy efficiency. There will be some themes come out that they can recommend things on. I think it's sparking already a really interesting debate on Wednesday next week. The Pemina Institute's organized one on coal, and on the panel is going to be the U.S. Uh, advocate who convinced Transalta, yes, that's Alberta's Transalta, to shut down its coal plant in Oregon for environmental reasons. How did that happen? That kind of discussion is going to be really interesting to get out there, and Transalta is going to be at the panel as well, so I'm curious to see if the movement will be made on that file too. Could we sort of see a similar punching change like they did for royalty review? Could that could kind of be postponed? No, no, the, no, no they she can't. can't do that. Absolutely no. not. No, I think, uh, sorry. Yeah, the, the royalty rates, they can just say status quo, leave it as is. They cannot do that when it comes to no. the climate change strategy. In fact, the government, the previous government didn't really have a strategy, and that was the problem. They had some targets. They weren't coming close to meeting. So they cannot boot this down the road and say, we'll come back in two years. they got to deal with this now, and particularly, again, when you've got this firm deadline. We're sending the premier to Paris. You got to give her something in her notebook to carry with her. And her whole messaging has been, we have to actually do things on the environment, not just talk about them. If she doesn't deliver on that, she's going to have some serious trouble. Uh, turning to the federal election, uh, the Duffy trial is on hold for now, so we're, we're done with that. The same terrible budgetary numbers that are affecting the NDP are hitting the federal conservatives. There's been a lot of talk about a technical recession that we're in right now. How do you think the economy will affect the weeks to come in this federal election? It, how big do you think this is going to be? Is this going to be what we're going to be talking about? 
the conservatives would like that, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> well, yes, yes, and no. But go on, I'll let you finish. Well, I mean, that's I mean, what that's what they've been campaigning on, right? Is saying that you know a strong, stable conservative majority is what can is is the the steady hand that the country needs if there is uh you know any sort of economic downturn or if there are any sort of questions about uh, the economy, technical recession or otherwise. But at the same time, we're also beginning to hear. I you know I was just hearing this morning that the country is it's beginning to look like we're starting to come out of that you know once these quarterly reports come out you know in a few months from now um, we may be seeing that 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 things have been improving somewhat uh, not necessarily in Alberta of course <laughs> um, definitely but we're but a little in, other, in other places in the country for sure yeah I think that uh, you're right that um, the conservatives want to bring this issue these issues namely um, the economy and security as being the big issues the economy meaning in a positive light but when you saw the recession numbers come out the opposition was all over Harper saying, yes, the economy, but he's done such a bad job with the economy. You could argue, of course, the price of oil is not in Harper's control. That's part of the issue, of course, is that these things are happening beyond government's control. That gives the opposition a chance to hammer the conservatives on the very issue they want to make a positive, and that's we can handle the economy, trust us to handle the economy, when in fact, if you're into a recession, you can say, well, you bungled that. And of course, in the opposition, NDP and liberals um, are saying they've done just that. It's interesting seeing Malcair talk about a balanced budget. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't understand that, um, how you can do a balanced budget in this economy. Yes, if things t- were to improve, Miriam, uh, you're right, but they won't be improving that quickly. And it seems that we're heading to, uh, you know, we're in a recession into a deficit. And uh, I don't know how they can balance the budget. And you got the liberals, of course, talking about investing more in infrastructure, which sounds a lot sounds a lot more like yeah. what Notley was saying back in the spring when you had um, the premier back then, Prentice, saying, we've got to cut, 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 cut. And you had Notley saying, no, 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 we've got to keep on investing. It was more of a mos- message of hope, more optimistic message. You don't need a majority to win an election. You can get 40% to get a, a majority. It is, it is, it, economic policy is one place where you're starting to see big differences between the parties, which is really interesting. I mean, true as... as um, Graham pointed out, Trudeau going out on a limb with this huge spending on infrastructure and saying, oh, yeah, we'll run deficits. we got to get the economy going. It's positive. You know, we need – it's true we need new bridges. Um, and then Mulcair being the more conservative side, you know, will balance the budget. And Harper relying on, look at all our trade agreements, which most of us can barely connect to. So it, it, it's going to be – I think it's going to be a very hot topic. And it's interesting too, just to bring it back to the provincial level on the on the topic of infrastructure. The province has obviously brought in David Dodge, the former Bank of Canada governor, to help it draft its capital plan and its and its infrastructure priorities. Well, he was on the CBC last week uh, talking about the need to invest in infrastructure across the country, especially at this time. Uh, and so one begins to wonder if that's going to uh, have any, you know, if, if that sort of perspective that he has is going to factor into the report that the government now has. Oh, absolutely. Stands. You know, yeah. they, they've hired somebody who's been on the record as saying, when, you, when things are slowing down, you have low interest rates, that's the time to invest in infrastructure. You have low interest rates and you actually help spur the economy. So on Wednesday, uh, our Twitter feeds were all of a sudden inundated with uh, this horrible picture of this uh, toddler lying dead on a Turkish beach. And it turned out uh, it was the the family of Alan Curdy, the three-year-old boy, had wanted to come to Canada. This Could an image like that and the refugee crisis it points to change the federal election campaign? The the narrative changed yesterday. The, The first narrative was that the family had applied for refugee status and they'd been turned down. 
Then it came out later in the day they didn't actually apply for refugee status, that the family, that their family members here in Canada had written a letter to the immigration minister saying, what, what can we do to get them here? So it's a much different process. So that softened the sting against the government. And at an emotional level, people were really angry about this, saying, what can we do about it? And I, and I can see it. Like I, was, I was in Lebanon a year and a half ago uh, doing stories about the refugees coming from Syria and just the living conditions they, are, they have in, in Lebanon and the bureaucratic nightmare. Will it change the federal election campaign? I don't think so. We will be seeing more images coming out from Europe of the refugees. It, it does also depend on how Harper reacts to this, other than just saying it's important we fight ISIS. Okay, fine. Th- that will take years. Mm-hmm. The, the crisis right now is immediate in terms of refugees. What I'm curious about is how Harper's reaction so far is going to play in in the ethnic communities. He's spent a lot of political capital over the years, Jason weaning Kenney. Jason Kenney, weaning them away from the Liberals and making you know, especially in those Toronto area ridings, making sure that, that vote is in his fold. I, I just I'm not sure that they can be that group of Canadians can be really happy at what they're seeing. The the government part of the story has shown the government hasn't met its own targets. Very few. Syrian refugees are actually getting into the country, and whatever he's saying about pledging to do more, the record isn't that great. So I'm curious if that impacts his his vote in the ethnic communities. Harper on the campaign trail uh, seemed to sort of point towards uh, continued military action against ISIS, the Islamic State. Paul Wells, who was on who's on the campaign trail, said he was really surprised by that. Were Were you surprised that that Harper sort of shifted it to that sort of that? conservative message of we must keep no, fighting the no, good fight. No, not at, was all. Paul, not at all. That's the obvious yeah, statement yeah, for him to make. His big issues as Harper's is security and, uh, and yeah. the economy. Mm-hmm. Security means we've got to go over there and fight ISIS. And this gives them a reason to say, look, the reason that little boy drowned wasn't because of Canada, and I agree with that. Um, it wasn't our policies. Uh, it was to do with the fact there's a war happening in Syria and we've got to fight the, the root cause. Fine, you want to go fight the bad guys, but in the, in the meantime, you have this humanitarian crisis, the biggest one since the Second World War, and Canada should be doing more. It's interesting looking at the numbers. You know, we, we have 25 or 22,000 refugees come in, and it's really opaque as to the actual number we've brought in from Syria and Iraq. You compare that, though, to Germany that's taking in 800,000 refugees. And our, you know, in, in terms of Syrian refugees, Canada's taken in 2,500. 20, uh, that's right, 2,500 plus 20,000 from about Iraq. From but Iraq. even then, reporters are having a hard time figuring out who exactly has been let in. The, the numbers are there. The numbers are very difficult. Yeah, it's difficult to figure them out. I heard a 700 number. They haven't yeah. even met last year's quota yet. So, so yeah, people actually in the community are saying, no, no, these numbers are inflated. And you compare it to other countries like Germany taking in 800,000. And a country like Canada, a wealthy country, can't afford to bring in more people. We took 60,000 boat people, I think, yeah, in the Vietnam. that's right. Yeah. I think our target was 8,000. We took in 60,000. We're now involved in the Syrian war. We have people over there fighting, dropping bombs. We're tied into this. We should be doing more to help the refugees. It's time for good stuff from the gallery. Each week we share something we've enjoyed, often but not always, with a political connection. Uh, Miriam, what do you have for us this week? It is the New York Times editorial from yesterday, September the 3rd, The Truth of Black Lives Matter. And it's a, an editorial really talking about uh, the, the Black Lives uh, Matter movement uh, in the United States. Obviously, it's, it's a movement that sort of came out of um, the increased attention on um, the sort of disproportionately high number of black men uh, and boys who are killed at the hands of police in America. Uh, and it's, it's a really good um, editorial that provides some historical context and, and sort of frames it sort of in a, in within the political debate right now some of the statements that are coming out of the Republican Party and why it matters. 
Hmm. Sheila. Well, I'm going to go to my summer reading list and an interesting story about a medicine hat family. And it's called, the book's called Forgiveness, a lesson from my grandparents. And it's about Japanese Canadians who were moved in World War II to work in sugar beets and live in a chicken coop on the um, prairie in terrible conditions. And their involvement with um, with uh, a family whose the father went over and was a fought in the Hong Kong campaign and uh, was captured by the Japanese and held in a Japanese prisoner of war camp for three years during the war. And Graham, article from uh, the news edition September edition of The Atlantic. It's called Better Watch What You Say, How the New Political Correctness is Ruining Education. It's a really interesting essay, really long as well. I haven't quite finished it. Um, about how students, this is U.S. campuses, you got to wonder if it's happening here. I like, likely it is. Students are becoming so thin-skinned. They've been raised in such an environment that they take offense to everything. And they're getting, uh, they're getting actually support by the uh, university um, faculties and e- even when a university professor wrote an essay uh, about the campus politics of sexual paranoia, she was then charged by the students for making them feel uncomfortable, talking about the very problem that she says is, is in campus. So it's really interesting. It's a really interesting, very detailed analysis of a problem that's evolved on campuses in the U.S. I'm assuming, I bet, this is a problem in Canadian campuses too. Interesting. And not yet on the press gallery. Um, <laughs> my, my pick this week uh, comes from The New Yorker, where uh, Ben Taub has written a piece called What Happens to Former ISIS Fighters? And it's about the thousand or so uh, former recruits to Syria and Iraq who have returned to Europe um, and what might happen to them. There's a, a, apparently 3,000 more um, that are still still uh, fighting. But a, a few of these a few of these people coming back get charged, but there's difficulty prosecuting many of them because there's just no proof of what they did. They could turn into domestic terrorists, but it doesn't seem like it's happening. Or they could be valuable warnings to possible recruits, but many still just simply want to return to a normal life. Previous episodes of the Press Gallery are at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion or on the Edmonton Journal SoundCloud feed. The show pops up most Friday afternoons and can be retrieved via iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and the Edmonton Journal website. We're all on Twitter. You should also check out the Journal's Facebook page. Thank you, Sheila, Graham, and Miriam for enjoying for joining me. Enjoying me. And, and we did enjoy you. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> Not sure. Uh, thank you for joining me in the newsroom studio. Tune in next time where we'll have a pop quiz on this week's discussions. It was. Uh, I hope you were taking careful notes. Uh, no time for the kegger. It's time to hit the books. That's all for now from the press gallery. Thanks for listening.